0: You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. Good morning, New City fam. Easter is upon us, right? We're coming up here in a couple of weeks to, we celebrate the resurrection every week, um, but specially in a unique way, we're gonna celebrate that. In a couple of weeks. Um, that weekend, we'll be celebrating that whole weekend. So Good Friday, go ahead and mark your calendar. We'll be um, honoring that night, um, commemorating Jesus's death. And then Sunday morning is going to be a party. It's going to be amazing. And so I want to encourage you um, to invite your friends. For whatever reason, there is still um, a cultural bent in the West that people will go to church on Easter if you invite them. And so um, I want to uh, commend you to invite your friends. If they come here, here's my promise to you, they're going hear the gospel and have an opportunity to respond to Jesus in faith. Um, On your way out today at the door, there's a little thing called the invitation station. Um, You can see a couple of invite cards right there for you to be able to uh, invite your friends. It has a website on it so they can get service times and all that kind of stuff. Um, So we are this morning continuing our series that we're calling the new Exodus. So we've been working through um, the books of Ezra Nehemiah, which is kind of this one overarching story of God bringing renewal um, to a broken people um, who just keep, keep getting opportunities and they keep missing. Um, they keep failing. They keep falling short. And again and again and again, the, the relentless glory of the story um, is that God keeps loving and using his people. Um, because, right, God is, is all about uh, redemption, right? He, the, the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah ultimately point us forward. They're a billboard, sort of, that, that alerts us to the coming of a once-for-all redeemer in Jesus, that he came um, to deliver us, right? When we couldn't save or lift ourselves up, that Jesus is the redeemer um, that we all needed. And so um, today, we're actually starting the book of Nehemiah. We just finished the story of Ezra, And we're moving into um, the book of Nehemiah. I want you to go ahead and turn there to Nehemiah chapter one today. And once you're there, before you get too comfortable, if you'll go ahead and just stand in reverence for the reading of God's word. We're gonna read all 11 verses in this first chapter today. Well, we'll spend most of our time in the last verse. Nehemiah chapter one, verse one. Says this. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, And I said, "O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sin of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, From there, I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. This is God's word. Y'all can have a seat. So I want to kind of sketch this out for you. What's happening right here. If you remember, I'm um, in the book of Nehemiah or in the book of Ezra. I'm sorry. We see a story um, of Ezra, this leader pursuing the spiritual renewal of the people. Um, So he, he is fighting to help the people of God see his law, see his commands and know how to obey him um, and to understand the calling to obey him. Right. But then the people go, okay, this is awesome. Great. Let's do it. We want to walk in alignment with God's commands. um, But it doesn't take long until they're secretly living a double life. Have you been there? Right. You know, the commands of God, you know, the life that he calls you to, but then um, you find yourself looking in the mirror and going like, man, am I, am I two different people right now? Um, this is in one sense, the tension of what many theologians refer to as the already, but not yet. Um, it is the season where, where Christ has redeemed you, right? If you have faith in Christ, he has, he has justified you. So you stand not guilty before the throne of heaven. You have a new identity that is secure in heaven that that is as good as Jesus has risen from the grave. So you've got all that, right? There, there is something fundamentally true about you that you are now um, beloved and precious in his sight. All of that is true about you, and yet you don't live out the full expression of that identity. You know that feeling, right? The tension between who you are and how you live, right? This is the tension so often of of the Christian walk. And so in Ezra, we see um, the book really ends with this sort of disappointing, kind of tragic, like, man, they came right up to the edge of obedience. And what we Uh, And then they, they failed, right? It it didn't go the way we wanted it to go. Um, And in that, that's where we see the greatest shadow of King Jesus coming because the great question at the end of the book of Ezra is like, man, if, if, if something doesn't happen in our hearts, there's no way we're going to be able to obey God. And friend, this is the good news of the promise of the gospel, that if Christ, dwells in, if, if Christ dwells in you, if his spirit has made you alive by grace through faith, it means that there is now a living spirit inside of you. The prophet Ezekiel would say that the heart of stone that you used to have that didn't love God, that didn't enjoy him, that didn't desire him, is replaced with a heart of flesh that now doesn't just see God as useful to your agenda, but sees him as beautiful. That's what God does in our hearts. And so man, we we need it. And when we come to the book of Nehemiah, the timeline's a little fuzzy as to where this falls in the whole arc of the story. All right, uh, different theologians would say that the, the happenings of the book of Nehemiah happen somewhere between like the fourth and eighth chapter of Ezra. Um, I tend to lean toward thinking based on study um, that this is, this is somewhat linear right here, that this is after um, all the events of the book of Ezra. Um, but hey, that, that is open to interpretation. It's not going to rob us of the meaning of, of these texts this morning. And so when we arrive here, um, what we see is where Ezra was prioritizing the spiritual renewal of the people. Nehemiah sees that there's not a wall around the city of Jerusalem and he knows he has to do something about it. See for you and me, we see something like there's no wall around the city and we're like, Cities are better without walls because you can drive in and out of them, right? Why would I even want a wall? What am I going to do with a wall, right? We, we have even like, you look through history, the Cold War, right? Um, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. Like we, we're not wall kind of people anymore, right? But the people of God right here, a wall was a very significant piece of cultural um, a cultural and physical protection for the people, You see, a walled city was protected from attack. It was a city that wasn't as vulnerable to foreign invaders who might come and press their will on the people. The wall also created the center of socioeconomic life. Like if you were to uh, close your eyes for a minute and walk into the city of Jerusalem when there was a wall, what you would find is that along the walls, that's where all the shops, all of the, um, um, the produce, all of the animals uh, for sacrifice or for eating, that's where you would go to buy those things. Um, and so the wall was a very significant part of the life of the city, and it was this symbol of protection. And so um, for the people of God to lose the wall, was in sense, was in a sense, um, a judgment of God. Like it's God looking at the sins of the people and saying like, you, you cannot protect yourself as things go, right? You need the intervention of the divine right here. And so Nehemiah, he sees that this wall is torn down and in verse four it tells us, as soon as he hears these words, he weeps. Right, it breaks his heart. It moves him to compassion. Right here, you get a glimpse of the heart of Jesus in this moment, right? If you if you remember from uh, Matthew chapter 9, it tells us that Jesus sees the crowds harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And what? He has compassion on them. That word for compassion in the Greek, it it, it has this sense of like this in his guts, right? It's like this. Oh, this sense of, I've got to do something about this. And so right here, Nehemiah's sense of heaviness and mourning over the sins of the people. This is telling us that Nehemiah, his heart is broken and he is about to do something. Okay. He is about to move. In the last verse of this chapter, it tells us that Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. So you've you've seen a movie about the Middle Ages at some point, I'm sure. Um, the cupbearer to the king is the person who sits next to him, and when um, they bring in the king's food and the king's drink, the cupbearer would take the cup first, take a drink, and wait a couple minutes to make sure that somebody hadn't tried to poison the king to kill him. So, if the cupbearer took a drink and five minutes later, it's like, well, he seems fine. Let's go for it. Um, or if the cupbearer dropped dead, he's like, that's not going to work. Can you switch out the Coke Zero for a Diet Coke? Let's do something different, right? So, the cupbearer was this, this intimate relationship with the king. So, I don't want you to miss this. I'm, this is all going to make sense here in just a moment. Nehemiah's heart is broken that the people of God are vulnerable. And he has this relationship with a king and it's right there in the intersection of those things between what is in Nehemiah's hands and what breaks Nehemiah's heart that he's motivated to action. You see, that's really what this passage is about. It's about the way of the people of God. What I want to call this morning, kingdom risk, kingdom risk, you want to know what risk God is calling you to take? Ask the questions that Nehemiah asked. What's in my hand? What relationships do I have? What connection do I have? And what breaks my heart? Where do I look at sin and shame and brokenness in the world? And I'm moved, right? This is the place where God calls us to kingdom risk. You see, kingdom risk is different than the risk patterns of the world. The risk patterns of the world risk for thrill seeking. And I'm not saying kingdom risk isn't gonna be fun. There's times it'll be fun. There are also times it's gonna be really not fun. I can tell you that from experience. But the thing about kingdom risk is that it requires you living in such a way that one, God will be made obvious Two, it will make you look silly if God doesn't come through or both of those things will be true. Like man, if I, if I step into this, if I take the risk, if I exercise courage, if God doesn't come through, I'm gonna look like a fool, right? That is the place that God calls us to live. And so often you and I, we avoid risk, And we refuse courage. I think the the greatest currency for the church in the coming age is going to be courage. Courage to believe, courage to stand, courage to protect the vulnerable and the weak. Courage to call what's crazy, crazy. And to invite people to the joy of Christ. The good news is, is that as we are called the kingdom risk, because of Jesus this morning, friends, God, the father looks at all that you need to exercise kingdom risk. And he says, yes, let's go. Here you go. Everything that you need this morning. Here's what you got it. You got it. And so friends, that was a long intro, but I want you to get some of the bearings for the book of Nehemiah and what's about to happen here, that kingdom risk is about to unfold right here and that you as a believer are called to kingdom risk. If there's one thing today from our text I want you to take, it's this. Because of God's attentive love, we can embrace kingdom risk. Because of his attentive love, That's what we're going to see through this first chapter of Nehemiah. That's what we're going to see through this entire book is that God is paying attention. He's intimately involved wherever he calls you to courage. You are not called to standing in courage alone. There's this beautiful story of a uh, Polycarp, one of the church fathers that he was a, uh, he was in his eighties, right? He lived all of his life. He was discipled by some of the people who were Jesus's direct disciples. And they come to the end of his life and, and uh, the governmental leaders are gathering around him and they're saying, if you don't deny your faith in Jesus, we're going to burn you alive. And Polycarp, this little unassuming 80 year old man, he says, Jesus has been good to me all this time. How could I deny him now? Light the fire, right? It's this unbelievable story of like, it's right on that edge of like stupidity and courage, right? That's where kingdom risk lives. And so we're gonna see in this text, three needs, the three things we need to embrace kingdom risk. Number one, the attention of God. Number two, a prayerful endeavor. And number three, an active mercy, an active mercy. Let's look back at the attention of God. Will you look at verse 11 with me? This verse is gonna kind of summarize Nehemiah's heart. This is where he's talking to God of all the things that he's been thinking and processing. He says first, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants. Nehemiah longs for the attentiveness of God up earlier in verse six in the text. he says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open. He said, God, I need your attention here. I need you to be involved. I need you to see what is it about your father seeing that changes your experience? Um, last, last spring we enrolled my son Bennett in gymnastics and, uh, he's, he's three. Yeah. Some of you who know Bennett, you're like, that was amazing to watch. It was amazing to watch. So, um, Bennett is three, right? And we, we get to gymnastics class and we're, we're sitting in a circle with other parents and the parents are pretty involved in this age. I didn't have to do any flips, but I basically just had to like make sure nothing terrible was going to happen. And so we, uh, we get into gymnastics and his teacher's name was Anna. Okay, And Bennett took a liking to Anna almost immediately. He really was obsessed with her. And uh, and so there were like six or seven other kids in the class and you would have to go to these different stations to do a different exercise or a different tumbling or walk a, uh, walk a balance beam or something like that. And every time without fail, Bennett would get to a new obstacle and he would scream across the room, I'm doing it Anna! I'm doing it, watch, watch, watch. All right. And she's trying to help other kids. And relentlessly, Bennett is like, I'm doing it across the monkey bars or climbing up. And again and again, I'm like, buddy, there are other people here. And he was undeterred, right? He's like, Anna is gonna watch, right? If she sees there is there is something that changes in his experience of the moment. And friend, similarly. The attention of God changes everything. Here's why. Because the attention of God is the source of our courage. That's the source of our courage. Like, listen, if you just look at yourself and say, man, I'm awesome. People like me. I'm good looking, right? You start naming off all these reasons. That is a short sighted courage that will fail you. It's vanity of vanities, like Solomon tells us in the book of Ecclesiastes. Friends, but if the attention of God, his intimate care is over your life, that is a courage that will not fail when the sparks begin to fly. You see, when God calls you into kingdom risk, you are going to need courage. and Nehemiah is so jarred, right? The situation is terrible. There's a wall that needs to be rebuilt around an entire city. There is, there is unrepented sin in the city. There are overwhelming leadership challenges for Nehemiah to face. And the first thing he says is not, I'll do it, God, with his cape waving in the wind. That's not what he says. He says, if we don't get your attention, if you don't intervene, if you don't do something here, we're not going to make it. You see, oftentimes we tend to think of courage in these very heroic terms. We think of courage as this like completely devoid of doubt or insecurity or questions. And what we see time and again in, um, in scripture, at least in the moments where we have a moral exemplar, an example to follow. What we see is that courage is marked by this humble dependence on God and this complete uncertainty of the future. Like Nehemiah is stepping into risk with no promise of success. Like he might fail, right? At this point in the story, he's stepping into that brokenness, right? That thing that breaks his heart and he might not win. He might not win. Uh, I'm not abserting this person to you as a moral exemplar, but I thought what he said was interesting this week. I saw an interview with Elon Musk, who's this eccentric person. Tesla billionaire. And uh, and somebody interviewing him said, did you think Tesla would be successful when you started? And he said, no, I really didn't. And the interviewer, the obvious question is like, well, then why did you do it? And he said, because the work was important enough to fail. Like I, I needed... I needed to do this so people would know that like electric energy is a future. This is not a sermon about electric injury or (laughs) energy or global warming, but I think, I think you get the point, don't you? Like the work is important, important enough to fail. That is the heart of Nehemiah in this text. He's going, I would rather step in and fail because God's glory and his people and his purposes in the world are important enough to risk it all for. Frank, can I ask you, do you believe that? Like, Do you believe that to be true this morning? And if you struggle to believe it, can I point you where Nehemiah's eyes went in this moment to the attentiveness of God? His eye is on the sparrow. Jesus, as he gives us a vision of the kingdom, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five through seven, he tells his people not to be anxious because if God pays attention to the lilies and he makes them intimately and beautifully and he provides for the birds who don't have any storehouses, how much more valuable are you? says in Matthew 6:33, seek first the kingdom of God. What? And these things will be added to you. I'm going to give you what you need to prioritize kingdom living. Friends, if you struggle with courage, you have to hear this this morning. Because of Jesus Christ, you have the intimate attention of God. He's close. He's not far. And some of us this morning struggle to believe that to be true because you've lived a week, right? Your courage has been tested. Risk has been regular and painful and hard. And if you're honest with yourself, you're looking around and you're going, God, I don't, I don't even know if you're there hearing these prayers, but I need help. And I tell you that because of Jesus Christ, there is no shadow of turning with your father. He's near. We need desperately the attention of God if we're going to embrace a life of kingdom risk. And if you don't start there, you'll most certainly fail or you'll succeed and become someone who is honestly just the worst. Yeah. That's not all we need. We need a prayerful task, a task that we enter into with a spirit of prayer. Look back at verse 11. It says, "O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. The last six to eight months have been um, the most that I've ever prayed in my life. I don't say that to brag to you. It's not an impressive amount. Okay. This was a, a big growth area in my life. There's been prayer of solitude and silence. And then um, on Wednesdays at 1030 here at the building. We gather um, with a group of folks and we pray, we, we intercede for our city. We ask God to move. We pray for you guys. We pray for our church, um, And I've really resonated with a C.S. Lewis quotation um, over those months of beginning to really learn how to take hold of prayer as part of the Christian life. C.S. Lewis says, "Um, prayer is not as much about us bending God's will to ours, but about bending our will to his. Right, that as we pray the truths of scripture, our hearts more and more line up with the heartbeat of Almighty God. And so right here in the text, we see that um, as Nehemiah is desiring the attentiveness of God, the thing that he does, his move, his play, when he knows he needs God's attention, is to move forward in prayer. Right? The, the subtext here would tell us Nehemiah, as he's looking at the situation, as he's looking at the thing that's breaking his heart, he is inevitably praying, God, what would you have me do? How would you have me enter in? You see, I th- one of the things that I've been learning over these months, and that I think we'll see reflected here in the book of Nehemiah, is that prayerlessness not moving toward God in a prayerful dependence. It is the best way to care a little bit about a lot of things. Um, If you don't pray deeply, if you don't pray regularly, you are destined for distraction. It is impossible to keep your finger on the pulse of God's heart without being with him in intimate prayer. And how can you expect to know where God is actually calling you to take a risk unless you have been with him, right? In prayer. But here's the good news. That's what prayerlessness does in us, right? And some of us, we, we all could hear like, man, prayerlessness is something I struggle with. It's something that, that plagues my life that I need to repent of. Here's, here's the good news. Right? Because of Jesus, again, prayerfulness It is the best way to get God's heartbeat and to care deeply about a few things. Here's the reality of living in a media saturated world. You are going to consume in the next month more messages or asks for your attention than someone who is 75 years old has likely experienced in their entire life. Yeah. That's how many messages, right? And, and not all of them are obvious to us, right? These are also, we're passing billboards, we're, we're, we're hearing radio advertisements. We're listening to the advertisement on the podcast. All of these messages are asked for your attention. Why? Because we are saturated, right? And every one of those messages is asking you to care about something. To put something else as the center point of your life. Man, no wonder we're restless. No wonder we feel tugged and pulled in a million different directions. Because everybody is asking for your attention. But here's the beauty. Look at the pattern in life of Jesus. It tells us in the gospels of our Lord. That he would often withdraw to desolate places. To do what? To pray. Even not living in a media saturated world, Jesus understood that with all of these vying voices for his attention, what he should care about, Jesus had to get away with the Father to hear his heart. Friends, if you're going to know what you should give your life to caring about, you must pray. We have to pray if we enter into the endeavors of life without prayer, we will care a little bit about a lot of things. And that is a recipe to not making a difference. It's it's kingdom impotence in a sense. But when we are a people of prayer, God will line our hearts up to his And more and more, you're going to be able to say no to everything else so that you can look right down the middle of the pipe and say, There is this one thing that breaks my heart. And I would rather look like a fool trying to do something about it than close my ears and move on. Jesus shows us the way in this. Will you pray? Will you pray? Without prayer, our endeavors are at best a vanity project to make ourselves feel a little bit better about us, friends. But in prayerfulness, right, we line up with God's hearts. Remember, these are the three things we need to embrace kingdom risk. We need first the attention of God. We need a prayerful endeavor. And then number three, we need an active mercy. I want to say one more thing about a prayerful endeavor right here. Um, uh, The exercise and practice of journaling in prayer has been one of the most transformative practices for me in getting a bead on the prayerful endeavor of my life of writing down as I'm writing these prayers to God, right? The more and more you're gonna see patterns form. You're gonna see desires that he's putting in your heart. And so I'd encourage you, whether that's voice memos or journaling, um, take that for what you will. That's not even part of the sermon. That's just bonus tip, okay? Number three, an act of mercy. An active mercy. Back at verse eleven, it says, "O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man." Now, I was the cupbearer to the king. In this short moment of prayer, Nehemiah is discerning. Okay, here's here is the thing that's breaking my heart. The people of God need the protection of a wall. There is sin to be repented of. And I have been placed in intimate relationship with the king. What's the next move? And what we're going to find in chapter two is exactly what Nehemiah does. He's going to end up going to the king, right? Which is a capital offense to approach the king without him calling you into his presence. Can I say for just a moment, you don't serve a king like that right? Where you, you can't come into his presence until you've made a formal request or until you've cleaned yourself up. No, no, no. We have a King. Tim Keller says it beautifully this way. He says only a child would approach a King in the middle of the night asking for a glass of water. That's the kind of access that you have. You have access to a better King than Nehemiah did. But nevertheless, here Nehemiah in his circumstance, as he's formulating what to do next, he is starting to shake in his boots, right? His courage is not a heroic courage. It's just a faithful, simple courage. Courage that just gets the job done, okay? And he asked God for success. He's like, okay, I'm gonna go talk to the king right now. I need success. I need you to grant me favor right here. I need you to grant me mercy, right? That's, that is the extension of grace. That's what mercy is. It is the giving of grace. And Nehemiah realizes that he needs it. You see, when he's asking for mercy from the king in Nehemiah's heart, he is essentially asking for greater mercy from a greater king. He's asking that in his endeavors, in his moment of, of absolute courage, right? When everything's on the line, when, if the King rejects him coming into his presence in this way, he'll be killed. That's it, right? Everything is on the line right here. And he realizes that if he doesn't have the active mercy of God with him, if God doesn't grant him success, he's not going to make it. And friends, I, I, I need us to understand this and think about it. So often we can think about relationship to God as transactional, okay? Right? You have transactions all the time, right? You go to Starbucks, you order the $12 drink. That was just a little jab at Starbucks right there. You order it. You, um, the, the cashier tells you that'll be X dollar amount. You swipe the card and you move on with your ride, right? It was a transaction, And for some of us, when we look at the Christian life, what we think is that um, because we are, we've been deficient in divine currency because of our sin, something happened at salvation where God downloaded resources into your bank account that you did not have. He saved you. He rescued you and redeemed you. And now that the zero balance has been made, right? You've been brought out of the negative. You're to zero. Now everything else is on your own. Like he saved you, but now it's going to be your job to get the rest of it done. No, no, no. Friends, salvation starts in a moment, but salvation lasts and happens over and over and over and over again in a lifetime. You do not have a mercy reserved to God dealing with your past that happened at one time. No, no, no. You've got an active mercy. You've got a mercy that walks with you. You've got a mercy that supplies for your moment by moment needs. When you have a task in front of you and your courage is fainting. Can I tell you because of Jesus Christ this morning, you have a mercy that will hold you up. I'm saying this to myself this morning, as much as I'm saying it to you, will you stop trying to hold yourself up and trust in the mercy of almighty God? Listen, you've, you've got agency, right? God in, in the beauty of his providence, even with God being in control of everything, he has given you the gift of real agency, decision-making. And so when the moment comes to choose, will I stand in courage and do what I believe God is calling me to do? Or will I faint? Friend, there is a choice before you to believe that the mercy of God is sufficient enough for you to walk into the office of the king with no promise of success as you're discerning see some of you some of you are going on to be doctors some of you are in retirement some of you are in the prime of your professional careers and all the time right god is putting moments in front of you to take kingdom risk He's putting moments in front of you where you can make Jesus famous, where you can risk looking like a fool if God does not come through or where both of those things are going to happen. He puts moments like that in front of you all the time. And the question is, will you receive what God has given to keep you standing in that moment? This morning, by the grace of God, will you receive his attention in Jesus Christ? Will you reject the spirit of the age of distraction and embrace a pattern of prayerful dependence, asking God to further and further give you his desires for the world? And will you believe this morning that the mercy of God is not reserved for your past, but is controlling your future? Will you believe it? I wanna show you something this morning. It's very rare I use a physical illustration, but I'm gonna do it today. This right here, my father-in-law recently came back from Africa and uh, he, he brought me this. It's a piece of camel bone that's sharpened at both ends and that's a handle. Right here, okay, it's a little, pretty deadly. Nothing weird's about to happen, okay? <laughs> a few of you look nervous. I was like, no, 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 it's, a, it's fine. Um, in, in African tradition, a Maasai warrior has to kill a lion with their hands before they're allowed to get married. Yeah, I just had to ask Aaron's dad. Uh, I, I love living in America sometimes, right? <laughs> but the Maasai warrior goes into battle with a spear, And this tool right here, and here's what happens is they chase the lion down and they track the lion and they finally get close enough to kill range. Right at the moment when the lion turns to lunge at them and kill them, they take this piece of bone and jam it in the lion's mouth so it can't shut. Right, so this, this is a symbol of courage on the line. It's, it's the moment where you're either gonna die or you're gonna succeed, right? And ever since he brought me this, I keep it in my office, I keep it up on my bookshelf. And as I see it, I remember it as a symbol of the calling of God on his people. Like friends, if we are gonna be a church that actually makes a difference in this city, we have to be a people of actual on the line courage to lead and love in a way that we're actually interacting with people that don't know Jesus. And that we are willingly taking the blows of a lost world that doesn't want Jesus so that they can hear the good news of the gospel. See, that's what it means for you in in whatever God has put in your hand. What is your job, right? Where do you work? Where do you live? Where do you play? That is the arena of courage for you. What in that place breaks your heart? And I want you to ask the spirit this morning to reveal to you, where is your courage failing? That God is calling you to step to the light, the mouth of a lion and keep it from shutting. This is Nehemiah's calling. And with all this in mind, he steps into the presence of the King with no certainty of success. Friends, this morning, as you're hearing all about courage, I'm almost done here. As you're hearing all about courage this morning, and you can think of 10 things immediately of places that your courage has failed, where you had opportunity to talk about Jesus, but you didn't. Or the place where um, you were you were sort of backed into a corner in a conversation, right? And and you didn't you didn't extend the love or the mercy of Jesus. Instead, you tried to defend yourself or where you chose not to love your neighbors and instead to, to, to focus on yourself, or you chose not to stand up for the hearts of your family, where you saw lies and, and misbelief of truth taking root in their heart, and you chose to just sit back and watch it happen. If you are a failure at courage, can I tell you this morning, there is one who exercised perfect courage on your behalf. Jesus in his great moment of trial, his knees shook with anxiety, but his courage did not fail because he was God in the flesh. And Jesus's courage took him all the way to death. Ours hasn't taken us to death. Not yet. At least Jesus has gone ahead of us in exercising courage. And because of the courage of your savior friend and his resurrection, you can believe and trust that his finished work is sufficient to forgive your sins and cleanse you of unrighteousness. And now because the spirit lives in you, you can have courage. I think that's what I want to end with today. Will you remember because of Jesus, you can have courage. You can, if it feels impossible right now to have courage, I want you to know that's a lie. It's not God's heart. We have much to learn in the book of Nehemiah. The reason we actually preach these two books, Ezra and Nehemiah is because over like three, four months ago, it was in the book of Nehemiah that God met me in a profound way. And I am so excited for us to learn together. So excited, let's pray. Uh, Jesus, Uh, we need courage. We need a heart for kingdom risk. I'm asking Jesus that those in the room today who feel faint-hearted, who feel like their courage is inches from failing, like they're just not gonna make it, Will you fill them today. For those of us who are prone toward fear, God we just receive the, the good promise that you give us through Paul and first Thessalonians that you have, you have not given us a spirit of fear, given us a spirit of love and of power and a sound mind. Jesus we want to risk. Risk is right in your kingdom. We declare it. We believe it. And Jesus, we ask you to work in this room today. Amen. I love you, New City.